You're listening to the really useful podcast. This is the tech podcast for technophobes. Welcome to the show. My name is Christian Corley and with me is Gavin Phillips. How are you doing, Gavin? Doing very well, Christian. Yeah, very well. How about yourself? Uh, uh, yeah, not bad, thanks. Actually. I had a, quite a good weekend. Um, I know you didn't ask, but I'll tell you anyway. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I, went, I went to see a band called Regenesis, which is a tribute band, as you can tell by the name to the group Genesis, but specifically the Peter Gabriel era. So it was oh, nine, nice. 1967 to 1976, 77 sort of time, I think it was when uh, Gabriel left. And um, my, my cousin's a drummer and has been for many years. Uh, so I don't get to see him very often because uh, most of my family live down south or around London. Because um, uh, it's true fact, I am the youngest of, uh, or the second youngest, my sister's the youngest, of something like 30 cousins. And um, Woof. yeah, a good portion of them live in the south of England. The rest of them live in other other places around the world. So we don't we don't get to hang out often because, uh, as Gavin will tell you, um, the um, or as Gavin will agree, the the non metropolitan areas of the UK they're like different countries, aren't they? <laughs> yes. Well, moving between them is extremely tricky yes. as well. <laughs> uh, Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a fascinating evening of. Um, uh, rem- quite remarkable musicianship, considering, you know, we've all seen tribute bands and tribute acts and stuff. The last tribute act I saw was an absolute, I want, to, I want to say pound shop, I'd say sort of penny shop, Freddie Mercury. And, oh, right. <laughs> you know, the comparison between that guy and what I saw on Saturday night, and yeah, the slight bias with the relative... Um, element but you know i've seen these guys before they've been doing it for like 20 odd years just fantastic musicians i mean they're playing music that was recorded like 50 plus years ago but specifically a prog rock band made up of ex- excellent musicians already and they're reproducing it all perfectly it's a, uh, a remarkable evening out i have to say that does sound fun um i must admit i'm more uh, more know what love the uh, later years of Phil Collins and what have you with uh, Genesis, but yeah, yeah. that should sounds good fun. Yeah, I've got a theory about that, but this isn't the time or the place for that. <laughs> we, yeah, we are here to bring you your weekly dose of tech news that matters and how it affects the way you uh, use technology, and then we'll give you some tips and tricks to help you make better use of the um, hardware, technical, software choices in your life. And we'll finish. I think I've got a recommendation. Hopefully, Gavin has as well we're going to kick this off this is an interesting uh, comment the um the co-founder of deep mind uh has um D- deep mind is a um a sort of uh it's an alternative to google isn't it? it's an ai lab yeah it's google's yeah. version basically yeah. um yeah. they um it started off as a separate research unit yes uh, it did, google yeah. bought them up they remained separate for a bit longer and now they are google's in-house ai development team and they've been working on stuff like bard but also like lots of the other ai developments you see in the apps we use day to day like pathfinding and all that sort of stuff yep. in uh, maps and gmail and all that sort of stuff well this is a, a, use, a useful uh, bit of information for you because uh, later on in the show we're uh, looking mainly at sort of uh, ai topics but uh, uh, mustafa Suleiman has um, stated that the, the business model that google's used has broken the internet 
uh, so to speak, which is a common term um, that's been used for years. But it's basically about clickbait plague in search results and um, certain companies uh, basically focusing their efforts not on information, but on serving ads, basically. And you, you um, can see how this is a problem because there is this whole element of the internet that is very much along those lines, isn't there? Yeah, I was just going to say, is is he wrong? Yes. <laughs> uh, we, I mean, everybody knows, and uh, I'm sure all our listeners are very familiar with the frustration of going to a website and actually not being able to read anything on the website before you've clicked through the cookie warning, clicked through a GDPR warning in, in Europe, uh, ushered away another advert, and then something else pops up. And it reminds me more now the internet of how it used to be years ago although i think that's i think it's way worse than it used to be isn't it way way worse i'm i mean i'm i'm thinking more along things like um, blade runner targeted adverts everywhere you look and well, you remember that uh, episode of uh, futurama where they enter the internet and the spam starts attacking from the sky <laughs> the spam is like birds flying down and swooping and trying to like, scoop them up from the ground to take them away forever um, but yeah that's exactly that how it feels yeah. <laughs> i missed that one i'm afraid but yeah no you know all these um, and the the paul verhoven's movies that are set in the future or the near future and everything's very sort of highly targeted adverts everywhere trying to flog you something everywhere you go and um, yeah it is it is quite depressing really uh, I, I mean i don't know what the way out of this i don't think anyone knows what the way out of this is other than to i don't know um i don't know detonate an emp maybe <laughs> i think the problem is is that there's the two paths we can take to deal with it aren't we and one of them is that more stuff goes behind subscriptions and we pay for content um, which people don't want to do. Yep. And if people don't want to do that, then the other alternative is the model that we have, which will only continue to cannibalise itself, yep. uh, as we now see. And until we can find a good method of encouraging people to pay for content that they want and they want to read, it's particularly on the reading stuff, um, we're going to end up in this situation and it's not going to resolve itself. We will move on to a couple of gaming topics now. First of all, I'll leave the depressing one for now. Minecraft has become the first video game to hit 300 million in sales, making it the best-selling video game in the world. That is a lot of sales. Wow. There's got to be oh multiple God. multiple copies there, though, for per, per user, I think, as people move across devices. Because, you know, it's been out for years, hasn't it? 2008, I think it launched. Yeah, it's really long time now. Yeah, I mean, gosh, that's um, it's quite phenomenal, really, isn't it? Like, I mean, I played it years and years ago, and now my kids play it a bit. <laughs> what yeah. have you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm. Uh, if- I don't mind it. I'm not a massive fan of it. I find it. Um, I find it gives me a bit of a headache, if I'm honest. But my my children love it, but they don't play it that often because um, I may mention this before. It tends to make my son really cross when he comes off it. Um, so we, the solution is we don't let him on it very often at all. Um, don't know why that is. Uh, yeah, it's a weird thing. Not sure what, what that's all about. No, no, I get a headache playing it, but I think I have a sort of... Uh, I've, I tried playing Doom recently, and, um, yeah, that didn't go down too well um, physically. Uh-huh. 
For you or your son? Yeah, for me. It's an age <laughs> okay. thing. I think it's an age thing. Uh, it's too too fast. Too fast, yeah. Must be that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, 300 million copies is uh, quite astonishing. Of course, Minecraft was bought by Microsoft in 2014. It seems like a couple of years ago. Um, and uh, then uh, became part of the Microsoft gaming empire. And it sort of spread onto other platforms around that time as well. And I think it's benefited from uh, from that purchase, hasn't it, uh, Mojang? Because they've been able to develop the game in ways that it wasn't didn't seem particularly likely at the time or before that. No, for sure. Uh, I mean, they've just released an, uh, a new update. Um, yeah. Last last month or this this month we're currently in, uh, which incredibly brings auto crafting to the game at long last. It was available through mods, and that's the ability in game to make a tool that makes things for you automatically. And people have been crying out for this for years, and you know, 10, 13, 14 years on, it's finally in the game. Mm, <laughs> so uh, I guess that's the trick, isn't it? Keep the people wanting, keep them coming back. Yeah, definitely. There's um, a few um, contextual figures here. Um, the Grand Theft Auto V has sold 185 million copies. Super Mario, as a franchise, sold 800 million copies. And Tetris, also as a franchise, has sold 520 million copies since the 1980s, with 425 million on mobile devices alone, with multiple versions released on uh, iOS and Android. It's pretty wild, isn't it? I, mean, yeah. I guess Minecraft is just one game, whereas they're... Yeah. Um multiple franchises series. That's like there's, yeah. there's so many Mario games. I feel like that's a bit of a cop out. I couldn't even possibly begin to name all the Mario games these days. No, not these days, no. No, no. And then you've got the handheld ones as well to think about. So, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah. Congratulations, Minecraft. And uh, just to uh, sober the mood there, Microsoft has completed its $69 billion to buy Call of Duty maker Blizzard, Activision Blizzard. That's uh, $57 billion in our terms, Gavin. That's a lot of, lot of dosh, isn't it, for two games, basically? I mean, yeah. look, it is, isn't it? It's basically Call of Duty and World of Warcraft. That's it. Yeah, well, the name as well. But I'd be more interested to see what happens because, obviously, we talked before, part of the reason this deal's now gone through is because uh, Microsoft has agreed to sell most, well, part of the part of its a share of the company to Ubisoft as well. So yeah. that's going to be interesting to see how that affects people outside of Europe and the US, I believe. I mean, we've talked about this at length before, so I don't want to go into it too much, but uh, it's just disappointing to me, personally. Uh, I've, I, you know, in, in a world of... I mean, I, again, I don't want to tread over things that we've already spoken about before, but, you know, there's a, an increasingly small number of companies owning everything, and Gavin mentioned in our last podcast the, um, the Steam Next Fest festival of um, demos, most of which are by independent companies. Uh, if you're concerned about the future of gaming, I suggest you just uh, head over and start checking out independent developers because they're doing superb work. Mm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. But, um, I mean, the list of games they're now going to be in control of, Microsoft, that is, is, is quite ridiculous, really. Um, yeah. So outside of Call of Duty and World of Warcraft, the StarCraft, Diablo, Hearthstone, Heroes of the Storm, Overwatch, Crash Bandicoot, Guitar Hero, Tony Hawk's revamped series, Spyro, and the uh, the list is just it's just ludicrously long. And to have one company overseeing all of that is 
I don't see how they can't have seen it's a monopoly, even if they get rid of or have given Ubisoft a slice of the pie. Like it's it's a disgraceful deal. It's horrible. We all know about artificial intelligence, certainly its existence and its uh, increasing use uh, in our day-to-day lives. But did you know, and I'll tell you what, I didn't know that there's three essential categories of AI, public, private, and personal. This is quite interesting, Gavin. What's the difference here? Yeah, like you said, there's three different types of AI that most people will come into contact with. Uh, at some point, especially as AI development ramps up, um, as, and it has it has been. So public AI is what we would call like generally accessible to the public. You know, the, the clue is sort of in the name. Yeah. Uh, but it's typically developed and maintained by uh, an organization. Um, so the, the primary one at the moment would be something like ChatGPT. Um, it's accessible to anybody that wants to use it. Its purpose is general use it doesn't have a specific um aim or use within an organization um and anybody like i said can go and use it yeah then you have private ai and private ai is more like something that was developed in-house by an organization so you think chat gpt anybody can use you have to imagine that companies like say google meta microsoft they likely have in-house AI tools that have similar functionality, but they're trained, say, using just Google's information or just Microsoft information. So when their workers and personnel want to find something or they have a specific question, query, etc., they can go to this tool, search for something, and it gives very specific information relating to the organization. Uh, these tools might also be used because it ensures much greater data security and privacy for these like massive companies. They don't right. want their internal documents leaking out, obviously, into uh, a public AI. As we saw with the, I think it was Samsung employees that were using ChatGPT and then the information they'd fed into ChatGPT started appearing elsewhere which is not a good look um and and then the final one is personal ai uh, and this is one that's also still in development and has a couple of different sort of meanings on it so some examples include virtual assistants like alexa google assistant and siri but the development of this is what people believe is going to happen is you will have a personalized tool and a personalized ai device that is with you all the time and it helps you and assists you with everything so be like the evolution of personal virtual assistants to be uh way more integrated into our lives <laughs> than they already are and of course if you use them at all yeah and there's um there's kind of privacy implications with each of these isn't there so you've got the public ai with its low privacy companies able to use data in accordance with the law. You've got private AI, high data security, as you mentioned, companies handling their own data, and personal AI, medium-level privacy. And you have to agree to that company's terms of service. Uh, it's interesting to categorise it because, you know, generally people aren't going to do that. So it's quite an interesting concept to introduce. Do you think it's something that can catch on? Do you think people are going to recognise that they're, they're going to be using public or private or personal AI? I imagine they're probably... The main distinction is going to be between things like a uh, an Amazon device and 
typing something into a computer, we're not particularly being that aware of private AI. No, for sure. I think private AI would will remain sort of out of sight, out of mind, unless people know about specific tools, won't it? Because of the general nature of them. The interesting thing I find is that for the most part, because folks like yourself and I and our listeners are are involved in tech and thinking about it and listening about it, so we're maybe overstating and how much people are using AI in general in terms of tools like public AI, like ChatGPT, and what have you, you'll still find a lot of people, A, have no idea about it, and B, even if they have heard of it, might not necessarily know how to even use it, or what they would necessarily use it for, rather than know how to use it. Like, how would they integrate something like that into their lives um, to make processes better, be faster, all of that sort of stuff? Whereas something like personal AI, someone might have been using it for years without realising that they're using um, a tool that's based upon artificial intelligence. Now, AI obviously has its uh, other uses beyond that. It's October 2023, as we record this, and the... um the software, the, the the web-based Canva software has just released its uh, Magic Expand tool as part of Canva Magic Studio. So there is this tool which, which basically creates creates images for you from images that already exist. And I'm not explaining this very well. Um, how is the best way to explain this? Um, it's tricky, isn't it? Well, let's take it from the um, the Photoshop angle because there's two tools, basically. There's um, Photoshop Generative Expand and Canva Magic Expand. And the Photoshop tool, I've seen this uh, demonstrated and it's uh, quite remarkable. Um, basically, it, it takes a photo and then it gives you several options of additional texture to the photo. Is, is that the best way to put it, texture? Take the example I looked at, a woman in a landscape and you want to zoom out of the landscape the tool will then create more landscape for you it'll generatively expand the image it will create more based on what you already have that's the best solution is is that have i explained it now i think that's pretty accurate yeah Yeah. for sure It, it looks at what's going on in the image and then it recreates what it would expect to find outside the boundaries of the image yeah. using an AI algorithm, yeah. It's quite remarkable, isn't it? It is, yeah. So the the, uh, the, the Photoshop version has been around for quite some time now, and that's yeah. always been... Um, it's always impressive to see, no matter how many times you see it. It's like, wow, it's literally just making the picture up as you go along. But with how good AI stuff is these days, you you kind of would expect it. But the Canva Magic tool is interesting because it's... Is it a free tool, I believe? Uh, You can get it on the free trial. Okay, that's quite interesting. But long term, you have to pay for it, obviously, with the, um, the, the the usual Canva subscription, which I have, but I haven't had a chance to play with it yet. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, I think that's really handy because the amount of times where I've created an image and it's just slightly the wrong scale, <laughs> ah. but, you, but you can't adjust the sizes of it because you'll lose the ratio of the image and it will look warped. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So a tool like this is perfect for those moments, isn't it? Yeah. There's all manner of things you could do. You could crop down to something and then expand it using the magic expand or whatever and see what it makes up almost. So 
there's um, there's so much you can do with it and obviously it has this basic uses of you know being able to create an image that you didn't have using a source image to expand and fill a space if necessary there's so much it's uh it's so 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 uh useful in many ways uh now, I mean, we, we've got an article on Make Use, which you should probably check out by uh, Ruby Hellyer. Photoshop Generative Expand versus Canva Magic Expand. Which generative AI tool is better? To be honest, I suspect each has its specific uses. Um, Photoshop has arguably a wider purpose than Canva does. Uh, a more general tool than Canva. That and everything else we discuss in the show, you'll find in the show notes. But I uh, recommend you check that out just to get a, a good visual on exactly what we're describing here because I think the best way that you can understand the the babbling that I was um, struggling to suppress earlier uh, is by having a look at it and may, maybe you'll have a better job of <laughs> describing what it was. <laughs> Uh, um, I know a key difference here reading through the article between how the expand works on both of these tools. So on Canva Magic, you can use it to extend the size and shape of one image without affecting the rest of the design. Yeah. Whereas Photoshop, um, the generative expand can only be used to extend the borders of the main background image. So right. you can't use it to ex um, extend um, other layers of the image that you create. So it's only the base level. So that's that's quite interesting to know. Yeah, it is. We'll move on now. I was on holiday a few months ago, as uh, regular listeners will recall and i was using various tools to communicate in portuguese because my portuguese is very poor and continues to be so i'm afraid to say i was using google translate quite regularly but it turns out that chat gpt might be better at translation gavin i have you tried this because you haven't been abroad recently have you apart from to places where you have been but they weren't no you've been to germany haven't you I have been to Germany, but everybody in Germany speaks, speaks English. Speaks English. So. <laughs> they speak better English than we do. Certainly yeah. in the Northeast, anyway. <laughs> yeah. So have you had the opportunity to try this? Because I'm, I'm intrigued that it would, how it would be better. Because I'm um, looking at this, and there's, it has, they both have strengths and weaknesses, but ChatGPT appears to um, have the potential and provides um, more context and more, more language options. Yeah, so uh, you're absolutely right, Christian. So from what I understand and from what I've used, because after I was in Germany, I thought, you know what? I go to Germany a couple of times a year. I should probably try and learn <laughs> a bit more German than uh, yeah. you know, hello and thank you and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, danke bitte. Um, <laughs> but um, it gives you much more context. And the way that you can use ChatGPT for translation versus something like Google Translate is to create a more unique and immersive experience whilst translating and also for learning so you can throw a phrase in there and it will catch the nuance of what you're trying to translate versus google translate which can at times just do a like for like word switch and if you try to say the same thing uh, to a local they might look at you funny because the words haven't been switched around uh, context has been lost uh, and what have you the best way to get to grips with this really is to just go ahead and try it and you could just try it on holiday or you could just you know you might already be multilingual and you know what to expect so you could try it that way as well but it's definitely worth uh, having a look we've got a good uh, sample in the uh, article a uh, translation 
or Filipino to English. Uh, so it's interesting to see how the two tools, ChatGPT and Google Translate, deal with the same phrase. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Because yeah. some of the text, the uh, writer, uh, Maxwell Timothy of uh, Make Use Of, um, he's used quite an array of, of languages, which is good. Yeah, I believe yeah. he contacted some of the other uh, writers that we have around the world at Make Use Of to get some help on this one. Um, and making sure that the translations from each of the different languages were accurate, that it captured the the essence of what the phrases were. So rather than just using a standard sentence like you may get, like how much is a loaf of bread, he tried to use um, like idioms and um, area-specific phrasing that these translation tools, both Google Translate and ChatGPT, uh, might not pick up on. Uh, and the results of it are quite interesting because it appears that ChatGPT definitely has... A slight edge on matters, but Translate wasn't far behind. No. I'm interested in the um, the, the Pidgin English or Creole, which Google Translate struggles with. It basically detects English and basically changes nothing, whereas ChatGPT translates it. Yeah, that's quite interesting. It doesn't understand yeah. it whatsoever. It doesn't pick up on it. But, uh, yeah, ChatGPT nails it. Um, yeah. And as the writer says, considering the highly contextual nature of Pidgin English, the results are very impressive, which is, is really handy. I'm a little bit concerned because the BBC specifically has a, uh, a website for speakers yeah. of that type of English. So yeah, yeah. I would expect Google to be on top of that, really. No, for sure. Uh, maybe an off day. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. Uh, well, we've uh, reached that point in the show where we uh, share with you our recommendation uh, for uh, something you might like to try. Uh, Gavin, which of us is going to go first this week? I can go first uh, if you like, because I'm, I'm, I feel prepared. <laughs> you feel prepared this week? Oh, uh, go ahead, mate. <laughs> somewhat, somewhat prepared. I mean, I, I had to think about it. Uh, there was an idea that I, a germ of an idea I had 10 years. No. Um, so Raspberry Pi 5 is coming, basically. And if you haven't already ordered one, and it's something that you would be interested in having, uh, now is probably the time to order it. There's a bit of a queue and a bit of a backlog forming. People with the Magpie magazine subscription have the opportunity to order early and get their devices early. I know Phil King of uh, Make Use Of has his already, and you can order it now, and it should be with you by de sort of December time. I ordered mine on like the first day or the second day, and my expected date of arrival is late October, early November. The Raspberry Pi 5 is a upgrade of the Raspberry Pi 4. You will not be surprised to learn. It has various advantages now we, we talked about its release last week uh in last week's show i've been looking at some of the various um things that it could do uh specifically in the area of retro gaming yes all right i know and i was fascinated to learn that it could potentially emulate are you ready for this mm. nintendo wii Oh, nice. Yes. Very nice. That's crazy because, you know, we talk about a platform that's 16 years old. It's like uh, each iteration of the Raspberry Pi just sort of like closes the gap bit by bit. And eventually, at that rate, 
by about 2050, it might be at the same stage. <laughs> I'm not saying it's still going to be back to 2050, obviously. But, you know, it might be at the same level as on mainstream hardware. Uh, probably not. But, yeah, um, PlayStation 2, Game Boy Advance, Nintendo GameCube, and Nintendo Wii have all been shown to work reasonably well with uh, emulators. And these are emulators that weren't designed for the Raspberry Pi 5. So as these emulation calls are refined for the Raspberry Pi 5's hardware, um, it's going to prove to be a uh, massive advantage for uh, retro gamers. That's very exciting. Because uh, I what, was did they use? Um, oh god, what's the emulator? Uh, Dolphin? Did they use Dolphin yes. for the emulator? They did, ah, yeah. That's very exciting. That's a very very good emulator. You can get on Android as well, um, and being able to use that with the Raspberry Pi fives massively upgraded capabilities is going to be. Oh, we're going to see some really good retro gaming handhelds in the next couple of years. It would certainly seem that way. Yeah. So, what's your recommendation? Uh, I've got two small recommendations, Christian, oh, okay. if that's okay with you, if that's okay. Well, I mean, it breaks the farmer because it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd check before I launched. <laughs> so I haven't spoken about keyboards for a good few weeks, so uh, I thought I'd regale you with uh, the latest mechanical keyboard sitting on my desk, which is a Lemo Key L3 um, custom mechanical keyboard. This is a gaming keyboard, gaming mechanical keyboard, fully assembled with a media knob. On the left-hand side, it has four integrated macro keys. And it's just a really beautiful keyboard that I'm ever so pleased with. I'm currently reviewing it. The review is not quite done, unfortunately but it's extremely well made comes with uh 2.4 gigahertz connection with a usb dongle also bluetooth and wired integrated battery the switches are extremely smooth and extremely fast mm -hmm. uh, and it's just a great bit of kit and that's going to be launching proper sometime this month but there is no specific date um but we will have a review on makeusoft.com soon enough um, and the second thing, also relating back to AI, which we've been focusing on, is the release of DALI 3, um, Open AI's image generation tool, text-to-image yeah. generation. And if you get a chance to play with this, listeners, please give it a go, even if it's just for a little while in a beta test or something, because it's incredible. Um, whatever you punch in, no matter the parameters um, or whatever, it will create a beautiful unique image for you uh, and the results are just like quite astounding at times the level of detail you can get dali 3 to produce and each time you put in a new prompt um, you can give an incredible amount of detail or you can give a tiny amount of detail and it will build up a unique prompt for you and create create an image so it's a it's a really yeah wonderful tool Wow. Uh, the links to those you'll find in the show notes, uh, along with uh, where you can find a Raspberry Pi in your territory. Well, by Jove, that brings us to the end of this week's really useful podcast. Huzzah, we've done it. We've done it. We've made it. Uh, we'll be back for a new show next week. Goodbye.